wife for 40 years. And he has five adult children and four grandchildren. So please give him a hearty welcome this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Wondering if I left my oh no there are I thought I'd left my notes somewhere else I would have gone I was going to have to wing it. <laughs> Amen. Well, it's great to be back, and uh, especially this time with my wife Sharon. And uh, we have, if the Lord keeps us going, this August we married forty years. Just remarkable. Especially remarkable since she's only 39 years old. I listened to uh, Pastor Jack's sermon. We watched it actually, Sharon and I did, from I think three weeks ago today. The uh, first uh, Sunday of the year. It was a charge to the congregation. Uh, just extremely powerful. We were just weeping at the end. Very little of that kind of preaching left today. Uh, in fact, I think, and I was telling Jack this, I think I've heard him preach a lot of sermons. I think that's the best one I've ever heard him preach. And that got me to thinking, if he preaches that well at 88 years old, what is he going to preach like at 98 years old? <laughs> Our kingdom conference starts Friday. I'd like to urge everybody here to attend uh, Pastor Jack and I were discussing the conference last fall. He pointed out to me that uh, City Church was birthed in a vision for the kingdom of God. Uh, enlarging that vision is an entirely appropriate objective, particularly during this transitional phase of City Church. That's what our conference is all about. So be here. Okay. <clears throat> Who plans to attend this weekend? Raise your hand. Good, you may put it down. By the way, I'm going to ask that question, same question at the end. <laughs> As I've been praying and meditating on the topic of the kingdom the past couple of months, it occurred to me it might be prudent to start the conference early. So consider this message, the informal launch of our January conference. A soft open, <laughs> as the business entrepreneurs like to say. My topic this morning is captivated by the kingdom. Our text is Matthew 13, 44 and 45. Feel free to turn there if you'd like. It'll be probably up on the screen too. These verses consist of two extraordinarily short extraordinarily riveting parables about the kingdom. In fact, Matthew 13 consists mostly of Jesus' kingdom parables. Some of them brief, some of them extensive. There's so much truth in these parables about the kingdom that it would be impossible to address them all today, and I'm certainly not going to do that. I'm addressing just these two short parables and the sobering truth they convey to us. So then, turn to Matthew 13, listen to the words of our Lord. 
Again, the Lord is speaking. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. For the moment, let's summarize the meaning of kingdom as God's rule in the earth, or we could say the way he wants his world to operate under his authority. These two parables teach two main lessons. Now, Jesus told many parables, and every aspect of every parable isn't designed to convey some truth. Usually, every parable is calculated to teach one or two great truths in a powerful way. What should we understand about the kingdom of God from these two parables? First, the kingdom of God is extraordinarily valuable. Second, to possess the kingdom, we must sacrifice a great deal. Obviously, this means the kingdom is to captivate, captivate our minds and hearts. Let me speak broadly at first, and then as I come to a close, be a little more narrow. The kingdom of God is so valuable, so indispensable to the life of one created in God's image, so essential to our future that any sacrifice is worth making to obtain it. Like a poor man who finds a treasure in a field, we sell all that we have just to buy that field so we can excavate that treasure. Or like a merchant who's gathered many precious stones over his life, does it for a living, we nonetheless find one gem more valuable than all of them put together. And we sell all of those other stones and everything else we have just to get that one gem. That's how much the kingdom of God is worth. And that's how much we should be willing to sacrifice to procure it. The Lord's is not an easygoing kingdom, and ours is not a casual faith. We live in a leisure culture, and this is a great benefit of economic liberty. We should thank God for it. We lounge in lazy boy recliners and drive SUVs and take oceanfront vacations. Nothing wrong with any of this. These, I say, are God's blessings. But we should never forget that the kingdom of God is not a leisurely affair. It's not something we simply enjoy. We don't drift into the kingdom. And it's not something that we can have by mere proximity or osmosis. It's remarkable how many otherwise sincere Christians really fail on this point, and all of us can be tempted to this. They somehow have the impression that attending church or maintaining contact with God's people is sufficient for the Christian life. If they just attend church, enjoy the God-honoring music, listen to the sermon, sing along with K-Love lyrics throughout the week, that will suffice for their faith. But my friends, this is a self-flattering deception we don't become more zealous Christians merely by hanging out at church 
are doing Christianese. Oh, make no mistake, the church is vital. City Church is the Corpus Christi, the body of Christ, along with other sound churches. The church is an outpost of the kingdom. There's no kingdom without the church. But your place in the church doesn't of itself mean that the kingdom will dominate your life. For the kingdom to dominate your life, you must be intentional about seeking it. We find God only if we seek him. Think only of these words in Deuteronomy 4.29. But you will seek the Lord and you will find him if, and as Pastor Jack would say, and only if you seek him with all of your heart and with all of your soul. And then Isaiah 55, where Jehovah is describing to Israel how to obtain the good life, the abundant life. And he states in verse 6, seek seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near, implying that he will not always be near. You know, God usually doesn't impose himself on his people. He calmly waits to see how badly they desire his presence his ways, his power, and how much they will sacrifice to have him. In Psalm 119.10, the psalmist cries, with my whole heart I have sought you. When someone asked Jesus to identify the greatest commandment, you remember how he responded? Quite famously, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. Now, the older commentators and Christian ministers will sometimes speak of religious affections. Religious affections. It's not a term we hear much these days. It means the God-drenched desires of our heart. In the Bible, the heart is the core of our being. It's not simply our emotions. People today think that's what heart means. Oh, my heart was shaken. They mean mean their emotions were shaken. But it's bigger than that. The term heart, translated heart, is bigger than that in the Bible. It includes our reason, for example. We think with our heart, Proverbs tells us. Your heart is the real you. The direction of your heart is the direction of your life. If our hearts are directed toward God, our lives will be godly. If our hearts are directed away from God, they will be or will become ungodly. Now, of course, in a fallen world, our hearts are never entirely unalloyed. On the other hand, even the ungodly are restrained from fulfilling every evil direction of their heart, and we are about to be thankful to God for that. No heart is either totally righteous or totally evil. But don't be deceived. There is a radical distinction based on the direction of our heart. Do we desire more than anything to please God? More than anything. Do we press ourselves to read his word? And at times does our heart burn as we read the word? Do we consistently call out to him in prayer even when our heart feels cold? In other words, in our heart of hearts, do we do what is right before God because our heart knows what is right even when it doesn't feel right? 
Do we long to be among the people of God and sing praises to our triune God and hear from his word and recite the great creeds of the church and commune with other Christians? Do we delight in righteousness and do we abhor sin? When we sin, are we grieved and do we confess our sins to the Lord and repent? And when we look at sin in our own lives and families and church and out into the world, does that sin inspire revulsion in our hearts? That, by the way, is a chief criterion of the level of our spirituality. Do we despise sin? Are we revolted at it? You say, well, I don't know, Andrew. I just look around. There's a lot of bad stuff going on. And yeah, I don't want to be a part of it. But, you know, that's just the way the things are. That's not how the godly in the Bible looked at sin. They were revolted by sin. And if we are holy in God's people, we should be revolted by sin. These are religious affections, and they characterize the Christian for whom the kingdom of God is a priority. Christians dominated by these religious affections are an increasing rarity today. I believe there are a number here that are, but sadly overall an increasing rarity. Why? Because Satan's working overtime to create a divided heart among believers. Now, to be sure, he's been doing this since the Garden of Eden. But you see, he has so many more tools at his disposal today. Ours is the time of digital distraction. Digital technology is a remarkable gift of God, an invaluable human achievement. God designed it to glorify him, allowed it to be discovered and developed. But anything good that God creates, Satan will attempt to pervert. And he has perverted modern digital technology. Our smartphones and computers keep us distracted from the things of God. Let me put this in a more incisive way, in a concrete way. They keep our hearts diverted and divided, our attention turned somewhere else than on God and his word and his truth and his gospel. Listen to a citation from a recent article I was reading. Quote, a 2019 survey survey by global tech care company Azurion found that on average Americans check their phones 96 times a day, meaning once every 10 minutes. This is a 20% daily increase compared to a similar study conducted two years earlier. Who wants to bet that in 2022, the number is higher than 96 times a day? Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with checking your phone. We often need to do it for work or just to stay in touch with our family. But these necessary uses often drift over into distraction. The latest Kim Kardashian story or an amusing theme about Joe Biden. The latest conflicting comment from uh, Dr. Fauci. (laughs) Our hearts are distracted from God and therefore from his kingdom. A.W. Tozer once wrote, I'll never forget this, I read it so many years ago. We are becoming what we love. 
And he goes on to say this, and I believe maybe we have that citation. If not, listen to this. There we are. We are to a large degree, listen to this, the sum of our loves, and we will of moral necessity grow into the image of what we love most. For love is, among other things, a creative affinity. It changes and molds and shapes and transforms. It is without doubt the most powerful agent affecting human nature next to the direct action of the Holy Spirit of God within the soul. It tells us what we shall be and so predicts accurately our eternal destiny. Loving wrong objects is fatal to spiritual growth. It twists and deforms the life and makes impossible the appearing of the image of Christ in the soul. It is only as we love right objects that we become right. I'm going to repeat that last sentence. It is only as we love right objects that we become right. What are you loving today? You can see why Satan has such a vested interest in keeping God's people distracted. We can't long love that to which we are inattentive. If we go long periods of time without thinking of someone or something, our love cools. If we think increasingly about security and possessions and entertainment and leisure and creature comforts, we'll eventually love them and not God. These then will dominate our lives and the kingdom of God will recede into the marginal mists of our minds and hearts. This entire way of thinking and living constitutes an aspect of Satan's kingdom. And never forget, there are only two kingdoms in the Bible, God's kingdom in Jesus Christ and Satan's kingdom. There are no third options. In the desert, Satan tempted Christ by offering him all the kingdoms of the world. Of course, Satan doesn't actually own all of the world kingdoms, even the rebellious ones, since he's a usurper. But they are often under his influence. Satan's kingdom is the counter kingdom. Satan was the angelic being, Lucifer, who fell as a result of his cosmic insurrection, trying to unseat God from the throne. Read about it in Isaiah chapter 14. Now he's working overtime everywhere to establish his kingdom on the earth. He's battling for the souls of men and women and all of human culture. And you and I are right in the middle of that battle. This is the hostility that we face everywhere. And it's also why it's necessary to make great sacrifice to obtain God's treasured kingdom. Our fallen condition and Satan never make this easy for us. Now, pop theology is wrong on a number of kingdom truths, but here's one I want to mention today. We know that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It's received by God's grace, not by our own works. Eternal life is not a matter of human ingenuity or achievement or merit. It's a gift. That's actually what the New Testament word translated grace means. It's gift. It's a gift. Therefore, we rightly speak of God's free grace. But the fact that it's free doesn't mean it's easy. Grace isn't casual, and salvation isn't leisurely. 
Our Lord himself declared, and notice this text, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult, difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. Difficult is the way. Gracious, yes, but not easy. Difficult. The kingdom is so valuable that it's not easy to obtain. Nothing valuable is easy to obtain. If it were easy to obtain, it wouldn't be valuable. There's a reason that iron ore is cheaper than gold. It's easier to obtain. The same is true of salvation and the kingdom. The poor man must sell all he has. The gym merchant must sell all of his other precious stones in order to obtain it. Now, Satan will do anything possible to prevent you and me from making that sacrifice. He'll probably tempt us into making small sacrifices to salve our conscience and prevent us from making this one big sacrifice. Small sacrifices like dropping into church occasionally, reading our Bibles once a week, praying over meals, just as long as we don't make the one big sacrifice of our life for the kingdom. But that kingdom is so prized that it's worth the greatest sacrifice that we can make. Thus far, I've spoken generically about the kingdom. I really want to tighten the focus as I draw this to a conclusion. First, what specifically is the kingdom? In the New Testament, the kingdom is a translation of Basileia. The word kingdom might create the impression of a realm. For example, we hear of the kingdom of ancient Babylon or Egypt or whatever. We might think of all the courts, all the institutions, and all of the people under the authority of the king. But in the Bible, kingdom means the reign itself. It's roughly equivalent to rule or sovereignty. In fact, in the Bible, whenever you see kingdom, and this is true in the Old Testament, but whenever you see kingdom, you can mentally substitute the word reign or rule or even sovereignty. The kingdom of God is the sovereign rule of God in the earth. Wherever the king is ruling, there is the kingdom. Now, obviously, since the fall, there's been what Charles Colson once called kingdoms in conflict. God is the sovereign king, and his kingdom is destined to win, but Satan has commandeered his own rebellious kingdom, and he's attempting to overthrow the rightful cosmic king. Satan will fail, of course, but he's frantically at work striking out against God's sovereign rule. This, by the way, describes the conflict that we see around us at every point, every point. Statism, abortion, homosexuality, the LGBTQ, is that enough letters? I keep adding letters. Agenda, crass materialism, radical feminism, or pagan machismo, he-manism, cultural Marxism, old-style garden-variety KKK racism, 
as well as more recent left-wing Black Lives Matter charges of systemic racism. All of these and many more are simply this, kingdoms in conflict. God's kingdom in Jesus Christ is vying against Satan and his kingdom for your life and mine, for our children and grandchildren and friends and this church and businesses and country and culture. The battle we face is actually the clash of kingdoms. There's no area of the universe that is not contested. There's no area of the cosmos of which the triune God says, that part doesn't matter. I'll just leave that to you, Satan. Satan, you can go ahead and get, have that. That's not important to me. You just go ahead over there and take your kingdom over there. No? And there's no aspect of the universe of which Satan says, I acknowledge Jesus as Lord right here. I'll try to set up my kingdom somewhere else. And I don't mind the lordship of Christ in these other areas. No. Every aspect of created reality is contested everywhere. But the triune God is the rightful king. He rules by means of his son. His word is law. There's no higher law. We're his subjects, and we don't get to decide our lives for ourselves. The king decides for us. Now, this is an apocryphal view of God today, even among assertedly devout Christians. They believe that God subordinates himself to man's, objective, man's objectives. The gospel, for instance, is the message of salvation to help me achieve my life's goals. Jesus saved me to help me do what I want to do. The idea that I must surrender myself and my goals to Jesus Christ is just a little too demanding for our autonomous tastes. This shows how far we are from understanding the kingdom of God. We know that Satan and his minions and even many unbelievers are working to advance the counter-kingdom. But among sincere Christians, the Lord's kingdom is hindered by several other false conceptions. But one in particular comes to the forefront in the modern world. I'd like to call this the privatized, the privatized kingdom. The very language is self-contradictory. The whole point of a kingdom is that it's not private. It's public. It extends widely. It's not something covert or secret. It exists beyond our two ears. A king never comes and says, I'm a secret king, don't tell anybody. <laughs> but for many Christians today, this essentially is the extent of the kingdom. Our devotion and our interests are basically vertical. That is, we trust in the Lord, we obey him in our private lives, and we love him and read his word and pray, all necessary. We attend his church, wonderful. We try as many as possible, much as possible, to get the gospel to unbelievers, wonderful. But that's about the extent of it. The kingdom of God is largely limited to my personal life and family, or at most, the church. A friend of mine in England uses very severe but all too accurate language to describe this view. The Christian life, he says, is reduced to a personal devotional hobby. Jesus and me religion. We have our quiet time, if that, and then we've sort of discharged our duty. 
Perhaps the main point that I want to make this morning is this. To be, captiv- to be captivated by the kingdom, our faith must be much more than a personal devotional hobby. The kingdom of God is his rule and reign and sovereignty in the earth. It goes beyond our own personal lives. To be captivated by the kingdom of God, to sacrifice all we have for the kingdom, is to give ourselves not just to intense devotion to the Lord in our personal lives, but to desire above all else the advance of his reign throughout the entire earth. That's just what the Bible envisions. Listen to these excerpts from the 47th Psalm. And I could have listed scores and scores, perhaps a hundred or so today. The Lord Most High is awesome. He is a great king over all the earth. For God is the king of all the earth. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. Now we know Jehovah was king over Israel, but that's not what the psalmist is saying right there. (laughs) He's saying God is king over the entire earth, that all the nations are his subjects. Then listen to the father's promise to his son in Psalm 2. Yet I, that's the voice of Yahweh, have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord said to me, God's son, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. That's not just a nice idea. That's a prayer. At the Lord's first coming, the Father exalted him to rule as king over the universe. Listen to Paul's words in Ephesians 1, 20 to 23. God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Did you notice that statement that all things are under Christ's feet? That's, by the way, an ancient metaphor, an ancient way of uh, speaking. A victorious king in a battle would place the vanquished king's neck or head under his feet, symbolically showing his supremacy. This is what Christ accomplished on the cross and the resurrection. This is what he did to Satan and sin, though both refused to give up. This kingdom has several striking implications as I conclude. First, there are no permissibly neutral areas of life. If Jesus is Lord, he's Lord of everything. Every part of your life. We can't say, Jesus, you are Lord here and here, but there's this little private area over here. (laughs) I really want to do my thing. No, I'm afraid we can't do that. Our secular world, since the Enlightenment, has pushed Christianity out of one area of life after another. They've argued that the good life, the good life, is the secular life, the godless life. Well, I ask, how's that working out for them? With more families ripped apart, with children left to themselves, with no guidance except video games, with millions of aborted babies, with sexual confusion everywhere with emasculated men and emasculinized women, 
with political repression over a virus that can be lethal, but which seriously harms only a small part of the population. No, I'm afraid there's no neutrality. There are simply no areas of life that are neutral. To say that education is neutral means that anti-Christian ideas should prevail in public schools and universities. To say that science is neutral is to open the way to, for example, Darwinism. To hold that economics is neutral is to invite state socialism or secular capitalism, which is also bad. To hold that politics is neutral is not to keep religion out of politics. Rather, it invites false religion, the religion of statism, to take over politics. In other words, since every area of life is contested by both Christ and Satan, there can be no neutral areas. And either the kingdom of God will be prevailing or the kingdom of Satan will be prevailing at any time. This means none of us can be neutral. Either we are for Christ or we are against him. Either we're working for the kingdom or against the kingdom or impeding it. Second, our interest, therefore, can never be limited to personal and family and churchly matters. Our personal relationship to Jesus Christ is vital. Make no mistake about it. We must be trusting him, submitting to him if we expect to gain eternal life. Our family should be submitted to him. His word should govern all of family life. And our churches are under his authority. Jesus is king in the church. But Jesus is king everywhere else also. For too many decades, Christians have abandoned all of these cultural areas. And these areas are now largely under the control of statists in politics and cultural Marxists in the universities and modernists and postmodernists in the arts and music and literature. Culture abhors a vacuum, and once Christians refused to occupy these areas, Satan was happy to oblige by installing his own citizens there. Somebody says, well, Andrew, I mean, it's up to you, then like, <laughs> everything would be Christian? Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> Jesus is Lord. Third, finally. If Jesus is king, his word is law everywhere. We can't say the Bible's authority can be limited to our own personal lives or to the church. The truth of God's word should shape our economics, for example. The Bible advocates what we call private property and economic liberty. Compassionately, of course. The Bible is to dominate our understanding of the environment. Christians don't support raping the environment but neither do we support radical environmentalism. We support God's care for creation, stewarding it for his glory. The Bible should mold our understanding of politics. <clears throat> we don't vote for Christians or people influenced by Christianity in order for them to impose the Christian faith on anybody. We believe in political liberty. In fact, we want to support politicians and policies that will increase liberty including the liberty for strong families and strong churches and strong businesses. We need Christians involved in politics in order to make politics less important than it presently is. Of course, we constantly confront rival claims of kingship. You see, the world is committed to another king and his claims. You're autonomous. You get to choose. Do your own thing. That's not what the king says. 
The king says, God now commands all men everywhere to repent. To Christians, he says, you're not your own. You are bought with a price. The world's king says, sex is a private matter. You can do with your body whatever you want to do. That's not what the king says. Here's what the king says. Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled, sexual intercourse undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Andrew, that's pretty strong language. Yes, yeah, God's language. The world says the federal government is here to protect you against COVID and against economic downturns. That's not what the king says. Listen to what the king says. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. For he shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness, in a salt land which is not inhabited. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is in the Lord. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by the river and will not fear when heat comes, but its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. I urge you to ignore what the rival pretend king is saying but listen to what the lawful king of the universe is saying. I conclude with what the old Puritans would call application. It's this. Are you and I captivated by the kingdom, God's kingdom? Do we love God with all of our heart and soul and strength and might and mind? Is our prime goal in life to seek for the things of God, his word and prayer, in church, in creation, in all of culture, in all the world? Are we captivated by advancing his kingdom? Wherever God's placed us, are we committed to living according to his kingly law? Whether uh, in business or in school or homeschooling or writing computer code or working as a police officer or a firefighter or selling or repairing automobiles, whatever it is, do we work to... Uh, form our lives and work to his holy law and try to influence those around us for his kingdom, for his sovereignty, for his rule. Finally, is city church as a body captivated by the kingdom? Do we seek for it as for hidden treasure? Do we sell all that we have to secure that pearl of great price? Are we interested as a church, only in growth for its own sake? Are we interested in new programs to bolster the church? There's nothing wrong with those objectives. <laughs> but we must understand that there's a greater objective advancing the kingdom of God. Everything else, and I do mean everything, can be sacrificed and should be sacrificed for the kingdom of God. Christ loves city church. He gave himself for city church, but he's not interested in city church as an end in itself. He's interested in his kingdom and desires above all else for, all else for his church to extend his kingdom in the earth. City church was born and city church could die, but Christ's kingdom cannot die. And the one overwhelming goal of this church would be to extend God's righteous kingdom, his kingdom in all the earth. God's kingdom 
is so valuable that it is worth sacrificing all that we have to get it and to keep it. Now, how many of you are going to be here for the Kingdom Conference this weekend? That's better. Father, thank you for these truths from your word. Lord, may we not merely know them intellectually, but may they saturate our minds and hearts. Help us above all else to seek your kingdom and your righteousness. Forgive me, O Lord, and forgive us for being distracted, running off not just into sin, but good things, but things that are inferior to the kingdom. Father, your priority is your kingdom. May it also be our priority. We pray it, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord and King. Amen.